Blog Talk Radio. We all have inner work to do. Real Life, Real Faith is an opportunity to connect with Cheryl and her guests as they take you on a journey to help you become your authentic self. Whether you need help goal setting, developing coping skills, or connecting with a power greater than yourself, Cheryl is here to walk with you on your path to personal transformation. Get inspired as Cheryl lets you become an active participant or just sit back and glean from the messages delivered. It's Real Life, Real Faith with Cheryl Lacey Donovan. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Real Life, Real Faith, and I am your host, Cheryl Lacey Donovan. And tonight we have two phenomenal guests joining us. First, there is former NYPD executive Corey Pagess, and I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly. If I'm not, I'm sure that he will correct me. He is also an author, speaker, and community leader. We will also be joined by National Gospel Recording Artist Dr. Mark Williams on tonight as well. And before we get started, you know, we normally like to go into some of the hot topics that have been um, trending over the last week or so. And obviously one of the biggest things that uh, we have to look at is the ban on Muslims coming in from certain countries uh, within our world. And, you know, in th- there are so many different sides to this particular story. I've heard some people say, you know, why didn't President Barack Obama run amok like a Donald Trump is doing with his executive orders? Why didn't he put in all of these executive orders to change certain things that, that we would like for him to change? Uh, and then, you know, other people are saying, well, if it's one thing that you can say about Donald Trump, he's out there and he's doing these things, he's making things happen according to what he said that he would do in his campaign promises. But, you know, there is something to be said for diplomacy, sure, you can go in, you can write all these executive orders, you can make all of these things happen, but at what expense? Expense. What is the detriment of going out and single-handedly writing these things? You know, some some of them not necessarily uh, uh, being supported by your advisors or the other people that are there to help you decipher what the best thing is to do. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know. There is much left to be seen with regards to this particular presidency. I, I think someone said that his his uh, ratings have gone down in only eight days, whereas some of the other presidents that have come through, it's taken them a thousand days. I think Barack Obama was somewhere in the range of about nine hundred plus days. You know, others may have been eight hundred days. I think President Reagan was in the eight hundred days, and. Um, you know, their ratings perhaps went down during that time as far as their popularity, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I guess there are some things that have to be done, some things that need to be done, but there is a way to do anything. You know, your your parents probably told you as you was coming up, you know, there there's it's not about what you say, it's about how you say it. And I think in this situation it's the same thing. It's not about what you do as much as it is about how you do it and the people that are affected by it. I know here in Houston, Texas, there was a 16-year-old young man who I believe is of the Muslim faith, and he went to Jordan to renew his visa and was coming back to Houston. They detained him, 16-year-old, from for two days here in the, I believe, the airport. From what I understand, in Houston, the Colonial Airport, 
And then after that two days, based on the executive order that went out, they sent him to Chicago. Now, his family is here, but they sent him to Chicago, 16 years old. He hasn't had very much communication with his family. And while I know that there are some differences and some things that occur within the realm of terrorism, so to speak, I'm not so sure that this is the way that we need to be handling these things. I don't know. You know, it, it, it basically remains to be seen. So um, I <laughs> there's a whole a whole lot involved in what is happening and what's going on right now. I hope that we have our eyes open, that we're paying attention. I remember a quote, and I can't I can't really remember who the person was that made the quote, but it it was in relationship to the Holocaust that happened so many years ago with regards to the Jewish people. And the quote said something like this, you know, first they came for um, the socialists, I believe it was. First they came for the socialists. Um, they didn't have anything to do with me, so I, I didn't pay attention to it. I turned the other cheek and went on my way. Then they came for the unionists. I was not a unionist that had nothing to do with me, so I went on about my way. And then finally they came for me, and then there was no one else to speak for me. So at the end of the day, what that quote simply means for us is that when we see things that we know are not right, when we see things that we know need someone to speak up for them, that we need to make sure that we are the change that we want to see. Otherwise, eventually, those things will come for us, whether we want to believe it or not. And it, it's a, it was a very poignant statement. I think it's a statement that definitely applies to what we're looking at now. And we need to put ourselves in, in position to be able to move forward with regards to the things that are probably going to be coming for us very, very soon. So um, having said all of that, I'm going to go ahead and take a quick break. We are going to come back, and when we do, I believe that we have Dr. Mark Williams here with us already. He is the um, national gospel recording artist that we have on here tonight to speak with us here at Real Life, Real Faith. And we'll be back in just a moment. Real Life, Real Faith with Cheryl Lacey Donovan. This is the news. This morning, we are saluting the 2.2 million women who have joined in the war effort. They now make up 37% of the workforce, changing their role forever. The prestigious Harvard Medical School is breaking ground today, opening its doors to new female applicants. Today, little girls all over the world look to the sky, where the first woman is now in space. Military stereotypes are challenged today with the trailblazing promotion of a U.S. female officer to four-star general. It was just announced that the vast majority of last year's doctorate degrees were earned by women. We've come so far, but our news is changing for the worse. More women die from heart disease and stroke than men, even though it can be prevented. Make a change at GoRedForWomen.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women.
Dr. Mark Williams, as well as Corey Corey Hedges, 
um, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, we're going to go ahead and start with, uh, I think Dr. Mark Williams had joined us first, so we're going to go ahead and start with him tonight. He, I had an opportunity to meet him this December at Christmas in the Park in Dallas, Texas. It is an event that happens in Dallas where children and families that are considered to be at risk are granted one of the most spectacular Christmas um, celebrations ever. I, I had an opportunity to go there for the first time about two years ago, went back again this year, and it has always been a wonderful, wonderful occasion. Um, had an opportunity to um, participate with the gospel stage. That's where I go and, and volunteer and work and record and interview some of the people that are there. And when I heard Dr. Mark Williams, I was just ecstatic. I, for me, when I hear him, he sounds a lot like um, a lot like Will Downing. He has this melodious voice, but he is not just uh, a one-dimensional kind of person. I think he's somewhat of a renaissance, renaissance man because he not only uh, sings, he has music. He also does medicine because he's an otolaryngologist. He also has a ministry, and he just um, he balances a lot of things. He has children. He has a wife. Dr. Mark Williams, thank you so much for joining us here tonight on Real Life, Real Faith. I am delighted to be with you. It's so good to, to have met your acquaintance in uh, Dallas, Texas. That was indeed a wonderful yes. event. My mind was blown. That was my first time attending and participating in it. And I have never seen such generosity in my life. I was blown away. You know what? And the same thing. My first year that I went two years ago, it was exactly the same thing. So I wanted to go back again. It was like I could not believe all of the generosity. I could not believe all of the blessings that were just being um, given to all of those families that participated in that. I know that nobody left there. If you got there when you're supposed to, nobody should have left there without having been blessed by what they were providing. And so what the first thing I want to ask you, Dr. March, is this. You you do medicine, you do music, you do ministry. How do you manage to balance all of that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I always say it's by the grace of God and by the grace of my wife <laughs> because, you know, I need both of them, frankly. Uh, but, you know, one thing the Lord told me years ago when I was in, even in medical school because I was wondering how I would be able to balance uh, the things that I knew God called me to do in ministry but also balance those with medicine. And at the time, I was planning to go into neurosurgery or cardiothoracic surgery, and, and I knew those would be pretty demanding on my time. And, and it was so clearly in one service we had done fasting and praying, and, and the Lord gave me a prophetic word. He said, listen, if you will just uh, – because the other thing was I left out was that I was really uncomfortable and, uh, and conscious, self-conscious about the gift that God had given me. Because I was at the church with people like Darwin Hobbs and William McDowell. We were all on this worship team together. And so I was so intimidated by other people's gifts that the Lord said, listen, if you would surrender the gift to me, I'll provide the anointing for you to be able to minister in my name. And then if you'll also submit your will to me and submit your life to me, I'll also provide the time for you to be able to do this. And, and the Lord has been faithful to that. I took him at his word and, and he has remained faithful to it. And, Simply put, it's just simply the grace of God that does it. Now, I, it would have been a different story if I had gone into neurosurgery. Perhaps it would have been a different layout, but that was never my plan to go into otolaryngology. That was the 
that was the handiwork of the Lord himself as well. Wow. You know, and, I, and when I look at you and think about all of the different things that you participate in now, I guess one of the questions that I, I want to ask is this. What was the catalyst? Because you are, when you talk about type A personalities and overachievers and that kind of thing, what was the catalyst to get you there? And just, just give our listeners a little bit of insight as to all you're you're involved in right now. So I'll say first, I stand on the shoulder of giants. The Lord has blessed me to be able to uh, have some wonderful mentors in my life. Uh, of course, my parents, we had uh, God-fearing parents and hardworking parents, both my mother and father. But my father died when I was 19 years old, tragically in a boating accident with my brother. And shortly after that, I came in contact with a, uh, a funeral director in the city. He was not the one who directed the funeral for my father, but uh, in my quest and uh, journey with, that God had ordained, that was a necessary part of it with the death of my father. And at the time, I was majoring in biology and uh, was not doing so well and was considering what else can I do with a, with a bachelor's in biology if I didn't get into medical school. Uh, as I was dealing with the grief, I wasn't performing very well in school. And as I sat outside my pre-med counselor's office, I saw this poster that said, fortuitously, what can you do with a bachelor's degree in biology? And I said, that's a very good question. And I looked at it, and it had probably 300 different careers, it seemed like, just scattered randomly on the page. And one just stood out in particular. It was called mortuary science. And I had no idea what mortuary science was. But I believe it was the Lord leading me to that. And after some prayer, I decided to change my major from biology to mortuary science. So I was a funeral director and embalmer before I went to medical school. And I came across the, uh, an owner of the largest African-American funeral home in Ohio, probably one of the largest ones in the country. And for some reason, and I know it was just the appointment of the Lord, he really took a liking to me and told everybody I was his son. So he sort of adopted me and took me under his wings. And, and uh, the, the faith that he placed in me was, was so mind-blowing to me was that, that he believed that I could accomplish anything that I put my mind to and, and was committed to supporting and making sure that those dreams came to fruition. So was admitted to medical school and at the time um, decided that I wanted to pad my resume <laughs> during a first and second year and applied for a fellowship through the Association of Academic Minority Physicians. And they had 10 of them in the country. I was awarded one of those. And we did uh, about eight weeks of research over the summer. And that uncovered incidentally, uh, at least in my mind it was incidental, uncovered a passion and the skill that I had for performing research. And uh, I actually enjoyed it. So I applied for another fellowship through the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Uh, they awarded one out of 20. I won one of 28, 28 of those that were awarded nationally. And I spent a year after my second year of medical school continuing that research that I had started. And that's when I decided to apply to the uh, combined MD-PhD program. And so then I um, spent the following two years, three years, uh, working on my PhD in pharmacology and cell biophysics and uh, came across a, uh, a wonderful, had a wonderful uh, PhD advisor. And he certainly poured into my life. He was a surgeon, but uh, he certainly poured into my life as well. And uh, afterwards, we graduated with both my medical doctorate and my PhD and pursued this career in otolaryngology. So, for 
from a from a standpoint, you know, of of how we do these things that that seem to be extraordinary. It's just a matter of persistent faith and uh, and disciplined obedience to whatever God has uh, ordained, and then also having the discernment to know the people that God has assigned to be beneficial to your life, and separating for the ones separating from the ones who God has identified as being those people that will retard you in your progress toward his plan. Wow. So, you know, I, I said earlier when we first got on the on the uh, broadcast, and I just want to let you guys know, when I first heard him singing at the um, event in December, I immediately went over to him and told him my husband would love his music. He sounds a lot like Will Down, and he loves that kind of groove that Dr. Mark has. And I got his CD, and he reminds me of Will Downing. So I'm going to ask you yeah. this. Who, what artist influenced you, Dr. Will? Take a wild guess. <laughs> Will Downing. Will Downing is one of my favorite no, artists. No, no. So that's a tremendous compliment to me. Now, uh, Will Downing, I, there aren't very many baritone voices that you hear in popular music and certainly not in gospel music today. Um, but his, the, the, the tenor of his voice is just amazing to me. And, of course, I've always loved Luther Vandross. The two of them together are, are, are some of my favorite vocalists. But in terms of gospel and the gospel arena, which I really honestly don't listen to much secular music, but... Um, in the gospel arena, my biggest influences have been the Winans, of course, and uh, and Fred Hammond and Commission. I came, I grew up in a time and started singing in a time when Commission and the Winans were uh, were the two all male groups, and uh, they were doing particularly the uh, Commission. They were doing some ground breaking music, and and it just really ministered to me. Uh, B.B. Winans, however, is probably one of my favorite songwriters. I think he has a tremendous gift to be able to put together some songs. And, of course, his voice is smooth as butter. So uh, if you if you can catch the pattern there, that's the style of music that I like. And, obviously, it, it spills over into the type of music that I write and I sing as well. So now your newest project, When a Man Worships, that was, um, you know, I heard that song, I heard the music, I was like, oh, my God, this is just, <laughs> this is such a wonderful song. What, the whole project itself, what inspired you to pursue that particular project, When a Man Worships? Well, I um, I knew that there was, uh, I, I really sensed in my spirit that there was a season, and, and I believe it has certainly approached us right now, where in order for the church to really come forth and manifest in its full glory and manifest in the midst of a dark world, that it really needed to be, uh, that there was a requirement that men would come forward and, and, and be bold in their faith and be bold in their worship and take a new level. Now, now we've always talked about the church being filled with women and then the men that were in the church a lot of times, uh, they were servants of God but maybe not necessarily worshipers of God. And I, and I wanted to make sure that there was a, dis, a distinction between the two. A lot of times we serve God, but we don't necessarily worship God, even in our service. The Bible says, uh, Jesus told his disciples, he said, there will be some that will come to me in my, and say, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal the sick in your name? And he said, I'll tell to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because I knew you not. 
And and to me, as I read that scripture, I wondered, I said, man, that's, that's a kind of hard words because you can do a whole lot of things for Christ and in Christ's name and even be successful at doing them. And, 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 and people who are looking on the outside say that must be a man of God. But Jesus responds to them and say, I didn't even know you. And all the work that you did was iniquity. It was evil. And the reason for that is because I never knew you. He said, more than your service, what I want is your heart, your time, your your affection. I want to know you even as I knew Abraham and, 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 and as I knew Moses and, and as I knew David. And those people in the Bible who the Bible says who, who, who God knew. I'm even listening to some of the scriptures where we talk about where Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they responded and. And then he finally said, uh, Peter said to him, he said, you know, you're the, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus repeated that to him. And he said, and I say to you that thou art Peter, which means that he knew Peter. Peter knew him and he knew Peter. And he said, upon this, I'm going to build my church. Upon what? Not upon Peter, upon the fact that Peter knew who he was and Jesus knew Peter. Upon the fact that we were involved in intimate relationships, I knew and I worshiped God. And, and and that's what God is really trying to build his church upon. And I think at this point, especially with the with the climate that we have going on in our country right now, now more than ever, we need men who know how to worship God. The Bible says when a man's ways please God, he'll cause even his enemies to be at peace with him. Absolutely. That's the word that's word. That's word. That's what the word says. So listen, what I want to do before we let you go is to give you an opportunity to let our listeners know how they can contact you and find out more about what you're doing. And once you give us that, we're going to close your segment out with an excerpt from your release, When a Man Worships. Amen. Well, the When a Man Worships, as you said, it features Darwin Hobbs, actually. He's been called Luther Vandross of Gospel, and then so it teamed up with Will Downing of Gospel, and he sings on that title cut. I'm so excited, so excited about getting that out. But it's easy to reach me. All of my social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Tumblr, and and you name it, is all at Dr. Mark Wills. Nobody else will? Dr. Mark Wills. And you can actually catch my website at drmarkwill.com. And I'm certainly available. And we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but as you mentioned before, I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon and the founder of the Voice Care Center of Nashville. I do a lot of teaching on voice care and how to care for God's instrument, our voice, uh, and the importance of maintaining our voice because this is the way that we use our natural bodies to create a spiritual force and impact the atmosphere around us. And so I do a lot of teaching from a spiritual standpoint as well as from a medical standpoint on the importance of maintaining good voice. Uh, for singers, for preachers, for anybody. I actually released a DVD, a 62-minute DVD, of talking about how to care for the voice, showing pictures of what the vocal cords look like when they're healthy and when they're damaged as well. So if you want to bring me out to your church for a seminar on voice care, I'm happy to come there. We can do that on a Saturday and then stick around on Sunday and minister in song during the service. Get all it at Dr. Mark Will. Uh, on social media or drmarkwill.com is the webpage. 
Well, Dr. Mark, thank you so much for joining us, and I thank you for reminding me about that that portion of what you do, talking about taking care of your voice, whether you're a minister, whether you are a singer, or whatever the case may be, uh, taking care of that instrument that God has given you in order to provide uh, whatever information there is that you need to put out there into the atmosphere. You guys make sure that you visit drmarkwheel.com, drmarkwheel.com, and he's on all of the social media at Dr. Mark will. If nobody else will, Dr. Mark will. And I truly love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark Williams, for joining us here tonight. And we look forward to um, being in touch with you in the future for some things that we may be doing with Real Life Real Faith. God bless you. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you so much. Back in a moment on Real Life Real Faith with Cheryl Lacey Donovan. There's one problem even I can't fight alone, childhood hunger. Over 17 million kids in America may not know where their next meal is coming from. That's one in five children. Yet billions of pounds of surplus food produced right here in America just get thrown out every year. That's more than enough to feed every last hungry child. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to hungry kids before it goes to waste but they can't do it without your help. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank by going to feedingamerica.org. Together, we can knock out hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. To help solve hunger in your community and to find your local food bank, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Real Life, Real Faith with Cheryl Lacey Donovan. We just uh, ended an interview with Dr. Mark Williams, who is a national gospel recording artist. His newest project, When a Man Worships. We want to make sure you go out there and uh, buy some of the music that Dr. Mark Williams has done. He can be found at drmarkwilliams.com. That's D-R, Dr. Mark Will. DrMarkWheel.com, DrDrMarkWheel.com. He's also Googleicious. He's on all types of social media at Dr. 
Mark Will. If nobody else will, Dr. Mark Will. And I encourage you to go out there and get a copy of his um, newest project, When a Man Worships. I love it. My husband loved it. It is very much reminiscent of uh, Will Downing, and um, it, it, it's got inspirational and it's gospel. So make sure you get out there and um, get some information about Dr. Mark Williams. Not only that, he's also an otolaryngologist, y'all. He has PhDs and, and all kinds of things. So visit him at drmarkwill.com. Our next guest tonight on Real Life, Real Faith is an NYPD, a former NYPD executive. He is also an author, a speaker, a community leader. But I happen to know, because I've had an opportunity to read his bio, that his life did not necessarily start out like that. So this evening we want to welcome to the broadcast Corey, and I hope I don't just totally destroy his name, Piguet. Or PGs. I've seen it a different kind of way. So, Corey, help me out with that tonight. Welcome to Real Life, Real Faith. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear Hello? you. Hello? Okay, yes. Yes, I'm here. Uh, I can P-G's. hear you. PGs, like at ease. All right, PGs. I got it. Thank you so much. So, listen, I happen to know that you, you reached some very, very phenomenal heights in your life, but I know that it did not necessarily begin like that. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about um, who you are and, and what your life was like before you actually got to becoming an NYPD executive and all of the other accolades that you've achieved. Oh, okay. Well, again, thanks for having me um, on the show. Thank you to you and Elise and Hurley, the whole team over there. Um, yeah, so I was born and raised in Queens, New York. I was teenage in the 80s. I grew up in a family of six five. We grew up on welfare. Uh, the third grade, my father left and things just went downhill from there. Sometimes we didn't have life. We lost a house. Had to move above a number spot. Legal gambling. Uh, location. Um, you know, sometimes we didn't have food, mayonnaise, sandwiches, cereal with water, or carnation milk, and all that good stuff. And about the age of 13 years old, and don't forget the food stamps, man. Don't forget those. We had that too. But um, around 13, I started gravitating to the streets, and I met this, this drug dealer who approached me and a friend of mine and asked us if we wanted to sell marijuana for him. And this is like in like 83, 83, 84. And um, we took it on. He said, I'll give you 100 loose joints. Give me $20 off every 100 you make. And so, you know, I was poor. I didn't have money. Sometimes I had to with my sister's family down. And it sounded good to me. I wasn't getting into it to be John Gotti or a major drug dealer. I just was just trying to eat. And so I took it on. And then we graduated from selling marijuana to getting rid of him and stuff on our own marijuana, selling cocaine, masculine bad, in a matter of 84, 85. This phenomenal drug called crack came out, and we started selling crack cocaine. And, um, you know, we was making money hand over thousands of dollars. Selling my one, we were making like a few hundred dollars a week. We were selling crackers, making thousands of dollars a day. It was just something that just really decimated our community. We all know the background of what it was in the 80s with the drug. And, um, yes, you know, I shamelessly say I was a part of putting out poison out there in our community, not knowing, you know, being young and stupid and making bad choices. But, um, yeah, those things I did. And when I was in high school, I started working for one of the most notorious drug teams in America. He's from the East Coast, for the Brinton team. And 
and um, it's a very violent game. And I have some, I have a whole bunch of stories in my book. And I talk about my book, Once a Cop, The Street the Lost World, One Man. It's a memoir I wrote about my life story, pretty much from A to Z, from growing up to in high school. It's the age of 17. I had two women pregnant at the same time, six months apart. Um, and so I graduated high school. I got two kids. Uh, some other things happened, which is in the book. I hope the, the listeners read the book. And um, October 18, 1987, I went to the military. I went to the Army for three years and eight months. Came back about six to nine months later. I went into the NYPD, and I rose to the top fairly quickly. And then with me being an executive, I was an inspector, deputy inspector, and then to the police department, which is the biggest police department in the country. <laughs> Actually, when I made captain, which is Logan Deputy Inspector. I was one of 13 black commanders in the um, whole NYPD department of 40,000 people. And I was assigned as a commanding officer, meaning like I ran a precinct through Flatbush Brooklyn. I was the first commander, the first black commander since 1865, the first black in the history of NYPD. We have that prestigious, a very prestigious police uh, uh, precinct and policing. And along the way, I got my high school diploma, my bachelor's, my master's, went to Columbia University, the Police Management Institute. I was a professor for six years, and um, I've been just doing a lot. I retired in March 2013. I'm a motivational speaker, and now I go around country speaking. Um, I got a book published again, one of the top. It's about my life, the street, the world, two worlds, one man. I do, you know, TV and radio. Interviews. I've been on the Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Hot 97 with Steve Grove, Reverend Al Sharpton, C-SPAN, and a whole bunch of other shows. I'm also an expert witness now. So that's my goal, is to get out here and spread my message, because I know there's thousands of kids out there selling drugs, being a part of gangs, thinking that's the way to go. But I'm here to let them know that's not it. You know, my book is written in three parts, hustler, cop, and executive, but the things in the book are self-awareness, self-actualization, transformation. I talk about police policies and procedures. Overall, what I want people to gather, I book young and old. Don't let your past identify, define your future. Because that 13-year-old kid that sold that marijuana, you would have never believed that he would become uh, one of the top executives in a major metropolitan police department in the country. So I know that there's this, 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 um, belief that, you know, once a criminal, always a criminal. And I, how did you manage to overcome that? And I'm sure that you come in contact with other individuals um, in, in the advocacy that you do that perhaps have, done, have, have been a part of some criminal activity. What kinds of things do you tell them to help them to, to identify and understand that they don't have to remain in the place that they're in. The thing I always tell people is they have to want to do it. You have to step out on faith. If you don't, if you don't believe that you could do it, then you're not going to be able to do it. You know, I always look at, you know, I always tell people, you always see, especially now around the country, cops getting locked up all the time. When you was young, you played cops and robbers, but you never could be a cop and a robber at the same time. So you're going to be a cop or you're going to be a robber. You, you have to make the decision in life at some point. This is what I want to do. I knew my life trajectory was going bad from 13 to 18. And my father left in the third year, so December 12, 1986, 
when I had my oldest son, Corey Jr., and I held him in my arms, I knew I wanted to be a part of that kid's life. So I started the process and the plan to get out of the streets, stop selling drugs, stop carrying guns, and just get away from all of that. So when I came back three years and eight months later, my all my friends was dead in jail, or some of them changed their lives. As a matter of fact, two weeks after I went to the military, the feds put down the whole Supreme Team, about 110 people, and they, some got life sentences, some got 20 years or five years or whatever. So I was able to escape it. Okay, so there we have a lot of right now a lot of issues that are happening with regards to the police department and in particular African American males. Many of these instances that have occurred are suspect to say the least. And the community at large is very leery of uh, police officers and you know, I, I don't know here's the question I'm gonna ask you, this is what I want to ask you. How do we fix that divide because at the end of the day you would want to believe that we could you could if a police officer comes up and is a part of anything that you deal with you would want to believe that you can trust them to do the right thing you would want to believe that you can call them in on a particular situation and that they would do the right thing and have your best interest at heart but i don't believe that in some of our communities that that is what we uh, we think will happen. So how can we bridge that gap? What can we do to make a difference? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because that's, that's a good question. That's the number one question in our neighborhood. And for me, being in law enforcement for over 21 years and actually being in the street, living in a, a low-class economic community, bad education, no schooling, crime. I, I know both sides of it. And it's actually, it doesn't, it's not rocket science to fix policing. One of the things, one of the main thing we need to do, police departments need to be transparent with the people. They have to be transparent. Are you going to have some bad cops? Yeah, we can have some bad cops. We got bad, bad doctors, lawyers, radio hosts, the whole nine. So what you need to do is identify, and it's not the entire police department that's bad. I, I mean, I know that because I've lived it and I worked in the precincts where you knew that these four or five cops, you didn't want to work with these guys. These were the bad guys. You know, it's not the whole police department, but this little blue wall of silence that they have, they have to break that. You know, and I'm constantly preaching to cops. You know, I didn't just retire and become an advocate. My entire career, I was on the forefront. People could Google my name. You know, I was at the 100 Black in law enforcement state, you know, Borough President Brooklyn, Eric Adams, and the rest of the guys. You have to be vocal and not let these things happen to you. Because in the community, the black community, the black community, I understand, they don't care what color the cop is. They just want the cop to come in and treat them with respect. That's all black people want. We do know right. our cops going to get in shootings once in a while. Yeah, once in a while they might get in a shooting, and one of them might be controversial shooting. But when you keep having these things over and over and over again, it paints a picture as if it's you against us. And plus, the police keep coming out here trying to create the narrative. When we're watching on video, you're telling me that that guy didn't choke him to death. And we're looking at the video saying, that's a choke call. He choked him to death. But you're standing on television saying, that's not a choke call. That's a professional karate move. So right now, with social media and video cameras, 
police can't bamboozle the community anymore. So it has to change. It's inevitable because what we need to do now is start putting people in office that has our best interest. You know, politics is not top-down. Politics is where you live. It's not Trump. I don't care about Trump. I care about that, that mayor where I'm at, my school board president, the local town. That's that's where the politics start. So we have to put people in where you're going to be running as a senator, councilwoman in my community, who you're going to bring in. You're usually going to bring people that's like-minded. So if you put a mayor in place and, you know, you don't like his interest, he's going to bring his police commissioner, just like our new president, he's going to bring Trump-minded people. That's just what it is. So we got to make our vote count because these police commissioners, administrators work at the liberty of the mayor. So you got to make sure you're bringing them in to have a okay, so it's, in it. I was just getting ready to say, it's interesting you brought politics into the discussion because our uh, president just named his uh, nominee for uh, Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, I, so I want to ask you this. Do you have any plans? for going into politics, because I'm sure you have a very um, interesting outlook, having been on both sides of the spectrum. What, what, uh, are there any plans for you as far as being in, in politics? No. Um, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm approached almost weekly to get involved in politics, but I believe that my calling is to get out here on the circuit, get out to these college, mm. community-based organizations, schools, and talk to these kids because my focus is to do that. And I understand that politics is dirty also. And I don't have time to play dirty with these people, you know, because if I'm in politics, I'm a straight shooter. I'm black or white. I don't see no gray area. This is the way Mm -hmm. we're going to do it. And I'm not going to bend, you know, because this person, you know, we need this person. I don't operate like that. So I probably won't be a good politician, not for the establishment. You know, it's funny you said that. I remember a couple of years ago um, someone asked me about uh, participating. I think it was in the school board at the time, and I was the same way. I'm like, you know what, at the end of the day, even though people that want to try to put me in that position, they want they have an agenda as well. And at, at any right. given time when I don't agree with that agenda, then they're going to be ready to oust me from whatever position they helped me to get into anyway. So I agree with you, but I do – think that it's important for us to understand that even though we have national politics and all of these things are going on nationally, the things that affect us directly affect us on a local level. So being able to vote for things like the mayor and the city council members and anybody that can affect our lives um, directly locally is what's most important. And I hope that people that are looking at everything that happened during this presidential election are going to be aware enough that when it comes to the midterm elections that we need to get out there and get the vote out there. That's right. I mean, that's really that's really it because so when I was a command I was commanding officer of all the projects in Brooklyn, the northern part of Brooklyn, I would go to every month I had a community meeting and I had forty different projects. You know how I many people I had in my meeting? And it was all black people living in play, it was all northern Brooklyn. I would get about twenty eight people. And I had 40,000 residents. I get 28 people at Demena. And then I was commanding officer 67 precinct at East Flatbush, Brooklyn, 90% Caribbean community. And I would get over 100 people in the meeting because they cared 
You know, when I walked in those meetings at East Flatbush, their hair was standing up on the back of my neck. It was like, wow, these people came and they're not playing. And they held my feet to the fire. And then in the housing development, there are 20 people coming in with an average of 68 years old. They're pushing some of them in wheelchairs to come to the meeting. We can't always keep blaming the police and these people are doing that. If we're not part of the process, and that's why I tell young kids, black and Hispanic, join the police department. And by the way, the NYPD got a new contract today after five and a half years. Cop can be making $102,000. All you need to for college credits for none of these black kids want to be cops because they don't like the police. And I said, we can't make change unless we're part of the system. So if the money moves you, after five and a half years, you can make $102,000. Whatever moves you, but I need you to be in there for the numbers just so we're sitting at the table. You know, as I was going through the ranks, the higher I got, the less black, obviously. And at the executive level, remember, it was only 13 blacks in the department of 40,000. So it, but at least I was at the table. So they had to, they had the whole eight miles. They couldn't do the good old boy network, little jokes, oh, why the chicken crossed the road and all this crazy stuff because I was at the table. <laughs> if we're not at the table, we never going to have a voice. They're going to be back there making their own decisions, just like this new president. And if we can't be mad, thousands and thousands of black people voted for Trump. Now you're stuck with them. That's just what it is. Yeah. Got to make yeah. our vote count. Yeah, that's, that's, that you're right. It's, it's very, very true. Now, I know that you uh, talked about your book a little bit earlier. Are there any new projects that you have on the horizon? Yeah, yes, I have a major, major project that actually I can just debut it. I'm not going to debut it, but I can say I'm, I'm about to announce a major um, signing. I'm about to sign a major deal in probably in the next 48 hours. So I have some options on the table. You know, we're looking to do some, um, Hollywood is calling for the book, we're looking to do it like a mini series, like The Wire, Empire, something like that, Scandal, you know, TV miniseries. Um, we got some documentaries, feature documentaries on the table. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. I appreciate all the support from the people out there. I mean, I put my heart and soul in that book. I, I was honest as I could possibly be. Some family members was mad. Some friends was mad. Obviously, some police was mad. But um, it's my life. It's like if you wrote a book, like it's your life. Nobody, you know, it's my life. I just put it out there, and I put it out there for a reason because I know that it was going to affect a change, people. And I'm constantly getting tweets, DMs, and Facebook messages. People, I just got one from this white. Um, middle-aged man today, and he he actually said, that I didn't know what his race was. I'm a white middle-aged man, and um, I just read your book, and I love it, and I can't begin to understand what you had to go through going through a police department. You know, those things touch me. It's not about selling a million books. Obviously, if I sell a million books, it would be nice, but just to touch people and give them a different perspective and let them know that we don't always have to be boxed into, like what you said at the beginning of the interview, once a criminal, always a criminal. That's what they want to box us into. Like, we can't change. Everybody else can change but a young black man. If a young black man did something once, that's what he is, throw it away. But meanwhile, since October 18, 1987, almost 30 years, I haven't committed a crime, stole nothing, or sold a drug. As a matter of fact, October 18, this year, will be my 30th anniversary of not committing a crime, and I'm going to have me a big party mm-hmm. to celebrate. 
Wow, that you know what that's amazing, and you kind of already answered one of the questions I was going to ask is what would you tell you know other African American males that that may feel like they are uh, boxed in or or like they are stereotyped. So that that was a perfect perfect segue for that. Um, the last thing I want to ask you before we leave on tonight is you know we want to make sure that we give you support. We want to make sure that people know what you're doing and and what we can what you're going to be doing next. So we can make sure if it's in the box office, we go out there and and support that. If it's a, a television series, wherever it is, that we are part of what you are doing. So let our listeners know how they can keep up with what's going on with you. Yes, please. Thank you so much for that. Um, it's very easy. People can just go to my website, coreypegis.com, www.coreypegis.com. P like Peter, E G like George, E S dot com. That's CoreyPegis dot com. And my Facebook is CoreyPegis. I'm constantly putting comments up, talking about most of them is about law enforcement issues. And they can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My Twitter handle is my first initial, my last name. And they can follow everything. I put everything out there. And I'm also, you know, one of the things I also do is go around. Um, and I do seminars, a PowerPoint seminar on police citizens' encounters or what people know as what to do and stop by the police. Because no longer can we depend on the police to make these encounters safe. We're seeing too many videos where these encounters are going wrong. And I'm not bashing cops when I do this. And I understand the cops got a whole lot of stuff going on. But my thing is to make sure that you live to see another day. So when you come to my seminar, I'm going to give you all the different encounters from the street to the car and in the home, I'm going to give you a presentation on how to get yourself back home to your family and your loved ones. If you take my advice, you'll, you'll make it. And so I get hired to do that all over also. And sometimes I do it for community-based organizations. It's, 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 a, it's, a good, it's a good way to bring me in and to learn to teach your kids on how to deal with police in different scenarios. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us here on tonight. We're going to make sure that we are supporting you as much as we can, letting our listeners know what it is that you're doing. Um, Make sure you contact us and let us know what's going on so that we can um, give you a shout-out here on the broadcast in the magazine or wherever else we can support you. Thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Everybody, this is Real Life, Real Faith with Cheryl A.C. Donovan. We're so happy that you joined us here on tonight. We want to make sure that you go out there and support those individuals that were here on tonight to um, do their interviews with us. We have Dr. Mark Williams and and Corey Pegese. I'm hoping I'm, I'm still probably messing it up very much. So, But make sure you go out there and support both of them. Um, Corey has some wonderful things that are coming up very, very soon where um, we'll probably be able to support him either on the big screen or on some type of a uh, broadcast series. So we're going to keep you posted on that in the near future. On next week, join us here as we speak with David E. Maxwell. He's the founder and CEO of DEM Beats Productions, a music production company, gospel music production company. And join us here each and every Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Real Life, Real Faith with Cheryl Lacey Donovan. And as always, we want to remind you that God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever ask or according to the power that worketh in you.
Be blessed.